Good morning. Let's take our scriptures together and go to Matthew. Matthew chapter 2 this morning. We'll be looking at this chapter this week and then next week as well. Matthew chapter 2. We'll be reading in verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. This is God's word to us, his people. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, and there this is mean, saying means they asked over and over again, where is he who has been born, king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, O you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's ask for God's help and blessing as we consider his words to us this morning. Our great God, we come recognizing again our need. We are familiar with these verses and this story. And yet there is still much for us to learn and a choice for us to make. Father, we would again see Jesus Christ high and lifted up. We recognize that he is our hope, our joy, our comfort our life. So may we give him glory and honor as we hear your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The challenge of preaching a passage like this at Christmas time is that we already know many of the details of this story. And perhaps even more, we already have certain ideas, maybe even misconceptions and affections for the story as we think about it. There are many details here in this account that Matthew doesn't explain. That we would really like to know. That, we've, that many, rather, have spent a great deal of time exploring and talking about and thinking about. But the question we're to ask ourselves as we come to any narrative passage of Scripture is, what is the author? What is his intention here? Why does he include certain details and leave out other details? For instance, if you compare this account with Luke's account, they don't record all of the same events. And that's for a purpose. Matthew's writing to make a specific argument. So what is his message 
in this text? What's he trying to accomplish in this story? He's presenting us with a story of influential men from the east traveling a great distance to worship a king that they certainly couldn't have fully understood as the Jewish Messiah. It's a marvel. It's a mystery. Why would these men make this kind of a journey? So what is God's spirit seeking to teach us in this narrative? This morning, we'll consider the passage as Matthew presents the flow of the story. Think of it as a story. First, we learn of the search of the wise men. We see the danger presented by King Herod. And finally, we read of the response the wise men give to Jesus the Christ. First, the search of the Magi. As we enter the story now in Matthew 2, we can rightly conclude that some time has passed since the birth of Jesus, since the end of chapter 1. There's a big gap of time. We learn later in this passage that Joseph, Mary, and the baby have moved into a home in Bethlehem. So it's been at least several months, perhaps even up to two years, as that's the target of Herod's wrath later in the chapter. In verses 1 and 2 now, we're introduced to the main characters of the story. We meet the wise men for the first time. We're introduced to Herod and learn who the wise men are actually seeking. The plot line of the story is also introduced with the wise men saying over and over in Jerusalem as they're seeking, where is he who has been born? The king of the Jews. This would not have been a simple, calming, easy-to-hear message in Jerusalem. Because they're not talking about Herod. They say, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. First, let's talk about the king. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Matthew wants to put before us right away, there's this contest between kings. If you look back through the passage, there's this repeated emphasis on the king or the ruler. It's mentioned at least five times. And the other theme that's mentioned, look for the word, is worship. Who will be worshipped as king? Now, what do we know of Herod the Great that's mentioned here in our text? We actually know quite a bit about this man. He was famous, dangerous, skillful, paranoid, successful, cruel, and long-living. He was the king of Judea, serving under the authority of Rome. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus says of this Herod, he was a man who was cruel to all alike. And one who easily gave in to anger and was contemptuous of justice. And yet, he was as greatly favored by fortune as any man has ever been. In that from beginning as a commoner, he was made a king. And though encompassed by innumerable perils, he managed to escape them all and lived on to a very old age. As we learn of many Roman rulers, Herod was corrupt and immoral. He brought great embarrassment and shame to the Jews he was ruling. When they said Herod was king of the Jews, this was not a compliment to a Jewish audience. He had ten wives and many children. Because of constant threats to his rule, he was incredibly paranoid. In an attempt to continue to secure his rule, he had his wife and three sons murdered along with many other conspirators, some real, some imagined. 
It's said even at the end of his life, he made his servants promise that they would find the leading men of the city and have them killed at his death so there would be real sadness when he died. And yet, he was very skilled politically. He was a clever and capable warrior, a skilled orator and diplomat. In a time of severe economic hardship, he gave back some tax money collected from the people in order to provide them with relief. He was a skilled administrator and builder. He built theaters and racetracks and other structures for the people's entertainment and is most famous for rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. We're also introduced to the wise men, the magi. Now, in spite of some of our carols, in spite of maybe common misconceptions, these men were not kings. They were a class of advisors, wise men, priests within the government of an eastern kingdom. It's likely that several differing regions had wise men like this. We read this about this in Daniel. We know that there were wise men that were a part of the Babylonian and Persian kingdoms. We know they existed all the way back in Pharaoh's kingdom. Daniel is numbered among them after he successfully interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He's elevated to be a leader among this group of influential advisors. They're students of science and astronomy. They combine them in religion and politics. They were thought to be able to interpret dreams. And they even dabbled in the occult. What we conclude, conclude about the Magi is that they were royal counselors or advisors. And at best, they were well-educated and prudent. At worst, they were deceivers, charlatans, and oppressors. We see an illustration of that in the book of Acts. The Greek word for these wise men, Magi, is where we get our word magic. So we don't know their names. We don't know their number. Many have come to conclude that there were three because that was the number of their gifts. But it's highly unlikely that these men travel up to 900 miles over months without more men, supplies, and protection. So it's probably a rather large group that one day enters into Jerusalem looking for this king of the Jews. Now these details of where they're from exactly, what means of travel they used, are beyond the scope of Matthew's purposes. Think of it, he doesn't include the story of the shepherds on purpose because he wants to demonstrate that Jesus is the greater Solomon. We'll see how he points to that in a few moments. He's showing us that Jesus is the greater Solomon to whom other Gentile rulers come to honor. Matthew is pointing out who Jesus will be and what his mission is. He's adding proof in this way that Jesus is truly God's Messiah in the line of the greatest of Israel's kings. He was God's Messiah no matter how indifferent or different Israel expected him to come. Now what is ironic about Matthew's inclusion of the wise men is that the Jewish audience to whom Matthew is writing would not have found this story helpful. Magi are not viewed positively by Jews, nor by the scripture. Remember in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh has court magicians, wise men, who are the opponents of Moses. In the book of Acts, they're magicians and sorcerers that deceive and trick the people. 
The Old Testament even mocks those who seek to understand the future by the stars. Why would Matthew include this story about them then? If he's trying to convince an audience who needs encouragement that their faith is real, that Jesus is truly God's Messiah, why include this story about these men? Well, the only answer is because it happened. Because it happened. And Matthew is trying to make a point about the kind of people that God is seeking to include in the worship of his son. The message that Matthew presents over and over in his gospel is clear. The gospel goes to more than just the Jews. Even if God's people refuse to recognize and worship her long-awaited Messiah, the Gentiles will. He hasn't come just for the Jewish people. Think of it, when Jesus sees the faith of the centurion in Matthew 8, he says, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom, that is of Israel, will be thrown into outer darkness. He's clarifying who gets brought into his kingdom. Right here at the very beginning of his gospel record, Matthew wants to make it clear that it doesn't matter where a person is from or what their profession is or what their background is. God is seeking for worshipers who will trust in his provision of salvation. Next, we are introduced to the the star. The star reappears all throughout this narrative. And there's a great deal of curiosity surrounding this supernatural sight in the night sky of which the wise men tell. Certainly these wise men are astronomers. They're learned. They're scientific men whose attention and imagination have been caught by this miraculous, mysterious sign. It's very possible that because of the influence of Daniel and other Jews in Babylon, that these men have been paying attention to the stars. Numbers 24, 17 prophesies, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. There are many fascinating thoughts and theories as to what the star is. How it could move through the sky like it seems to be doing in this account. Some believe it is a comet or supernova and they look through the record of history and say, well, did we see anything like this phenomenon happening then? Perhaps. Others believe that it's an angel as appears in Luke's account of the shepherds. But we can't be certain about the star because Matthew's not interested in explaining the scientific phenomenon. What we do know is that God is a God of light and throughout scripture, he controls that resource for his purposes of revelation and guidance. Think of it, Moses sees a burning bush that is not consumed and God speaks to him. Israel is led for years by a pillar of fire. When God is revealing his law to Moses at Mount Sinai, we read, To the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. When Jesus was transfigured, his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. Saul of Tarsus was blinded by a light from heaven that he describes in his own words as brighter than the sun. And in the new Jerusalem, there will be no more need of the sun, moon, and stars for light. 
For we're told the glory of the Lord will illumine it and its lamp will be the lamb. What's the source of that light? We don't know. But we know behind it is a God who is seeking to reveal himself. We don't need to understand exactly what the star is or how it's functioning. What we need to clearly understand is that God wanted to bring these men to his son. He's demonstrating his desire for all the nations to see and know and worship Christ, the king of kings. And he chooses to use a natural phenomenon to which they will readily respond. The narrative here also makes the point that the highest learning of humankind through general revelation and nature is not enough. Humanity needs special revelation through his word to find the truth. Notice the star appears and they follow it to Jerusalem. That's not where the Christ child is. They need more information. What Matthew presents so clearly in his narrative is that Jesus will draw men and women to himself from far beyond the boundaries of Judaism. And at the same time, it will stir up great opposition because he has the right to rule and mankind does not naturally submit. Matthew Henry writes, those who desire to know Christ and find him will not regard pains or perils in seeking after him. Those who know something of him cannot but covet to know more of him. Does that describe you and your zeal to know him? Certainly, the wise men are presented as examples of faithfully seeking after the revelation that God has provided. Secondly, we see the conflict of kings. The tension in the story rises as the current and reigning king of the Jews hears that the rightful heir to the throne has arrived. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. You see, Herod is not a Jew by birth. He's been given this role. It's been appointed to him by Rome. He's famously desperate and suspicious of any who might threaten his position and control. In verse 3, we read that Herod was troubled by their question. The word troubled doesn't really do justice to the original language here. He's now nearing the end of his long reign. He's growing more and more paranoid. He's already put to death some of his own family members. And he is greatly agitated. The word could be translated as terrified by this news. His citizens do not like him. They'd be more than happy to see him removed by one who has a legitimate claim to the throne. It's most likely that when it says all Jerusalem is troubled with him, it means that they know when Herod gets worked up like this, it puts everyone in danger. Herod wants an answer to what the wise men have seen and what they seek. So he asks his chief priests and scribes, what the scriptures say. And now what is disturbing, sad, and foreshadowing of what is to come for Jesus is that the religious leaders who have God's word, who understand what it's saying, are so disinterested that they refuse to seek out the Messiah themselves. Why do they do nothing with the information, the confirmation of prophecy that they've just received? Certainly this could have been a hoax, but it wasn't really that far of a distance from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to go and find out. 
the Christ prophesied of here from the Old Testament, from Malachi 5, will be both a strong and capable ruler, and yet we read a shepherd of God's people. The second half of this quote comes from 2 Samuel 5 too. It speaks of David as the shepherd of God's people that God will provide to them. The Messiah will certainly follow in that line and ultimately fulfill all of God's intentions by providing a perfect and holy and godly leader for his people. Dave Carson points out the contrast in these verses between the eagerness of the Magi with the apathy of the religious leaders and the hostility of Herod. All of them had some portion of scriptures and natural revelation to guide them. And he concludes for us, formal knowledge of the scripture does not in itself lead to knowing who Jesus is. It's possible that there are some, there's one, there may be many, who know what the scriptures say about Jesus, but they're not seeking him. They don't truly know him. Herod summons the wise men to him secretly now in order to lay out his trap to remove this potential threat to his rule. He believes he's gained these men's confidence as he lies that he wants what they want. He says, when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. It's a crafty plan. If he sent a regiment of soldiers with them, the family of the Messiah would likely have fled and escaped his grasp. Instead, he employs stealth and deception in order to try to stamp out this rival. Now now just think and pause for a moment. We know the story well, but just pause and think. If you're reading this story for the first time, this seems to be the highest point of tension. This isn't just any ordinary baby. People don't come from across the lands to seek just any ordinary king. And what will these wise men do? Will they be pawns in Herod's plan? God's Messiah is being threatened already. Satan is using the selfish, fear-driven paranoia of a human ruler to stamp out the one that God prepared as the savior of the world. So we see number three, the worship of the nations. God intervenes. And he guides these men again by bringing the star back into the picture. We read, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. It seems like this is perhaps the only place in this account where it looks like the star is moving. Perhaps it is. We're not exactly sure what's happening. What we do know is that the supreme ruler of heaven and earth leads these men right to where Christ and his family were staying. It's just five or six miles south of Jerusalem in the little town of Bethlehem. It leads us to ask, how does this star's rising lead these men, these particular men, to this place? How did it start to move once they met with Herod and at just the right moment lead them on this perhaps two-hour walk from Jerusalem to Bethlehem? How did it seemingly come to rest right over the place where the child was? Are these just circumstances? Coincidences? The answer to the question specifically are we don't know. But what we do know is that it was not doing this on its own. 
God is guiding this surprising group of outsiders to worship. To worship his Christ. He's doing it to show his immense power and pleasure to bring unexpected people to himself. Just as Luke explains how God uses the census to bring the family to Bethlehem, Matthew shows us how God uses this supernatural light in the night sky to bring Gentiles to worship the Son of God. And isn't this still his plan for you and me to lead others to worship his Son? Isn't this his plan for our neighbors and our family members, our co-workers, our friends? He desires all men to see And rejoice in Christ as their hope, as their savior, as their king. God's fulfilling his word given long ago, proving that Jesus is Messiah. Isaiah 60 and verse 6, we we heard it read this morning. And all from Sheba will come bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. Psalm 72, 10 and 11 was first written of Solomon. But it's fulfilled in Jesus when it says, may the kings of Tarshish And of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. For he will deliver the needy who cry out. The afflicted who have no one to help. Jesus will later say in Matthew's gospel that one greater than Solomon is here. Matthew is demonstrating that's absolutely the case. This is the Christ. The wise men now respond with an explosion of joy at the conclusion of their long quest. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Notice Matthew stacks superlative upon superlative of joy. They rejoiced. That could have been sufficient. But he says they rejoiced exceedingly. With great joy. This is it. They'd made it by the means of supernatural guidance. Over months of travel. Over lots of questioning. Over lots of uncertainty. And now going into the house. They saw the child. With Mary his mother. And they fell down. And worshipped him. Matthew Henry writes again. We must give up all we have to Jesus Christ. And if we are sincere in the surrender of ourselves to him, we will not be unwilling to part with what is dearest to us and most valuable to him and for him. Nor are our gifts accepted unless we first present ourselves to him as living sacrifices. And here's the heart of the passage. It's the central message to us this morning. God doesn't want our things or our possessions. He doesn't need our money or temporal resources. The message of scripture is he wants our love, our response, our commitment, our obedience, our submission. He desires what is good and right and best for us. And that's worship of him. We give worship and gifts because he's worthy of worship. Not because he needs anything from us. But because we're recognizing what's best for us to see. That he is to be the center of our tension and our lives and all that we have. And we're happy to give anything to him. Because we recognize who he is. 
David once said of his giving that he would not give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. And that's exemplified here in these wise men. We're to give out of a response of joy. Not a desire to place God in our debt. Nor seeking to secure his blessing and favor in response. Like these wise men we give because he is worthy of all that we have. Of anything we have. So what are we to make of these three gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Do they represent something theological? Well, for these wise men, that would be quite a stretch to conclude that they brought gold to highlight that he is the king, the true royalty, king of kings. The frankincense is highlighting his role as priest before God, that the myrrh was anticipating his death, the embalming spices with which he would be uh, anointed after his death. And yet, it does seem appropriate to see these gifts foreshadowing these truths, even if these men didn't understand that. The wise men brought and graciously gave what people would give to honor a king. Certainly, they don't understand all that's happening here. These costly gifts would serve as God's provision for this family as they escape from Herod. The Magi have been led here to worship him. This one, born in obscurity, is recognized by unlikely devotees as the future king of Israel. The child whose birth is shrouded in the suspicious illegitimacy that's addressed in chapter 1 is, in fact, God's legitimate choice of shepherd, king. Our passage teaches us this morning that God sovereignly leads the nations to worship Christ, our king. So what is the proper response to meeting Jesus? It's worship. Do you see that from the text? Do you see that's what God is desiring of all who look at Christ? Worship here and in our lives includes submission, adoration, sacrifice, giving. It includes recognizing his worth through whatever revelation of him that we're given. Think of how far the company of this wise man had come. Consider just how little they actually knew and understood. And yet they come and bow before him. This passage illustrates as well that he came to his own. His own did not receive him. Matthew's demonstrating that God seeks to bring all people to worship his son. Jesus is the universal Messiah for all people, all nations... Not just the Jews. And one day every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. And recognize him as king of kings and lord of lords. But to receive Jesus. You don't have to be a great scholar or teacher. We've already highlighted in this passage. He comes to the lowly. The outsider. The unexpected. You simply have to respond in faith. To whatever revelation God has given. So what is your response to Jesus this morning? He entered into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. Perhaps that describes you. If you do not know Jesus as Savior and King, turn to him in repentance and faith. Maybe you've been near Jesus because you know a lot of things about him. But if you would examine your heart and say, do I worship him? Would I give him my allegiance, my submission, my obedience? I don't know him as king 
and Savior. Turn to him. He alone can rescue from your sins and the consequences. This morning, how will you respond to the Christ child today? There's three responses demonstrated in this text. Rejection, indifference, and worship. Herod rejects him because he is a threat to his control, to his desire to rule over his own life, for his plans, his small, tiny, human plans. He can't see anything beyond that. He is king of his life. The religious leaders are indifferent, and thereby they reject him as well. They're content with just a little bit of knowledge about him but are happy to remain at a distance. They don't want to serve him either. They don't want to bow to him. Those with the least understanding of the revelation they have, those seeming to be the farthest from God in the text, worship because they believe the revelation they've received. How will you respond to Christ this morning? Does he threaten the pleasures and selfish passions you want to pursue? And therefore, you've been rejecting him rather than submitting. Are you indifferent? As you examine your heart this Christmas season, Christmas includes Jesus. And that's how you think. But you haven't thought of worshiping him. You know enough about him that he doesn't really have much say over your life. You're content to keep him at an arm's distance because you're getting what you want out of life at this point. You can't really think of a lot of needs. You're content with Jesus at a distance. Or will you worship him because of who he really is? Because he truly is Christ, the king, the ancient one whose coming was foretold from of old. The one whose star would shine and rise. The one who would shepherd his people. The one who will delight you and rejoice your heart forevermore as you worship him. As you submit to him. As you find him to be your greatest joy and treasure. How will you respond to Christ this morning? He would have your worship and submission. But you must come to him on his terms. You must recognize him for who God presents him to be. As Christ the King. Let's pray.